Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Alarm, alarm. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, your Second World War podcast of choice. And Jim, very fortunate to be speaking to an excellent guest, aren't we? Yeah. Who we've spoken to before, in fact. Yes, we have. A great friend of the show, um, um, a great personal mate of mine, um, an aviation nut, um, the author of many um, best-selling books it is, of course, Roden White. Um, Roden, welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. It's uh, fantastic to be here uh, sort of under genuine um, pretenses, really. Uh, last time around, we were talking about the Falklands <laughs> War, so finally I get to talk about the Second World War. Well, I know you... I mean, Al, it's really good news, actually, because Roland, Roland's become afflicted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, he's, he's fully he's fully realised the errors of his ways and that, you know, remote uh, British Army and, and SAS operations in, in Saudi Arabia and and Oman are no longer what you need. What you really need is just Second World War books. I'm swimming in a much deeper ocean now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, the la- last week, the last we saw of you was at uh, We Have Ways Fest, where you were paired up with uh, Joe Coles to talk about the Western we World Yeah, that, that was uh, having yeah, spent two years talking about the mosquito. To end up spending an hour talking about the whirlwind was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my favourite so, moment still was the um, was the picture of Sid Vicious that he came up came up with and I was thinking where's where's this heading and then it was uh, promised too much too soon I mean with Joe you really never know uh, but it was a, it was fair warning to some of the, uh, the those who are sort of underage in the tent that um, there was worse to come <laughs> that's absolutely true so Roland um, as you know um, I absolutely loved your book uh, uh, Mosquito um, and the great thing about it is it I suppose it is about the mosquito but it's it's so much more than that and um I, I can tell that you you did what I often do, which is you get into a subject they get very, very excited about about the course of your research and, and end up doing lots and lots of rabbit holes. Um, and doing rabbit holes and going down down little sort of side streets is exactly what we do on this podcast. So obviously very in favour of it. Um it is about the mosquito, and I think you should just. I mean, for, we have talked about the mosquito before on the podcast, but but for those who haven't listened to that episode, maybe just a very, very, very quick kind of two minute recap on on the birth of the mosquito and why it's so amazing and cool and why we all love it, uh, and then we can talk about. I mean, it's it's as much about the Danish resistance as it is about about mosquito operations. Let's face it, and, and all those cool people like Basil Embry and things. We should talk about him. He's brilliant. Definitely. I mean, there's no shortage of great people. I mean, as you know, like like you, I've I've never seen a rabbit hole. I've um I've not not I've been able to avoid jumping down. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and in fact, being relatively recently afflicted, I think, has been probably to the book's great benefit in that I've, um, I've sort of come to everything with a sort of fresh pair of eyes and, a, and, and um, you know, genuine sort of curiosity and wonder about everything I've discovered. You know, it's all felt kind of exciting and, and, and new. Um, you know, not least the mosquito. I mean, it's, um, its story is relatively familiar, I suppose, to people. Um, as you know, as, as, as people will know, you had Des Curtis and John Lilly on, um, you know, last year sort of talking about it. You know, Des, a former mosquito navigator. Um, but it, it was an aeroplane that sort of struggled to find its place initially. And it was only through a couple of uh, a very high profile supporters that it managed to sort of somehow 
thread its way through to production. Um, you know, the RAF was, as you know, completely committed to the idea of strategic uh, bombing as a sort of raison d'etre. And it was realised in the late 30s that it was going to also have to defend itself against the possibility of, uh, of German bombers. And so there was uh, fighter production was ramped up massively. Where the Mosquito was going to fit into that um, uh, was, was uncertain. But Geoffrey de Havilland, inspired by the success of the DH-9 in the First World War, believed that there was room for a, 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 an unarmed bomber uh, the survival of which depended on its flight performance, its speed and the height at which it could fly, um, which is very much the model of the DH-9. Um, and uh, having uh, sort of dismissed the idea of license building aeroplanes for other companies, um, decided to privately fund a prototype of the Mosquito in order to give, well, actually, it was less to do with strategic materials, more to do with speed of production. Um, by building it out of wood, which was something that de Havilland had great experience of doing and had built this extraordinary uh, wooden airliner, the Albatross in the, the mid-30s, reckoned that they could get it into production using materials that uh, were not in such high demand, i.e. aluminium, give it a chance of proving its worth. Um, and uh, that's exactly what they did. And it was immediately obvious in 1940 that they'd built... Um, a machine with absolutely remarkable performance, which was supported uh, throughout 1940 by Wilfred Freeman, who was in charge of RAF um, aircraft acquisition, um, and who was said to uh, to keep a Tommy gun um, in his office just to keep Beaverbrook away and, and, and away from cancelling. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the Bomber Command didn't want it. Um, the Royal Navy actually wanted it uh, to, as a target tug. But there was a you know, relatively obscure requirement for a um, high-altitude reconnaissance aeroplane. Uh, and that was what uh, Freeman held on to. And he got a, a production order for the Mosquito as a reconnaissance plane before it was then subsequently ordered as a fighter and a bomber. But, you know, immediately it flew. It, it impressed everyone with what it was capable of doing. Did he have to pull strings to get his hands on Merlin engines at this point? Because they're, they're, they're you know, they're being parceled out quite um, meanly, aren't they? They've been allocated, haven't they? So does he have to does he have to call in favours for that? The Mosquito was, from the outset, designed around the Merlin engine to, to right. the same extent as the Lancaster Spitfire of the Hurricane. I mean, as you know, the Hurricane was delayed because they, the, the Merlin was, was delayed. But, I mean, it, essentially, yep. the, uh, the, the Mosquito was the smallest amount of airframe. You could squeeze around a crew of two, uh, a 2,000-pound bomb load, uh, and two Merlin engines, and it, it simply wouldn't have worked. I mean, right, we were talking about the whirlwind, obviously, and how crucial yep. those Peregrine engines were. It wouldn't have worked with any other aeroplane. The margins and the compromises involved in building any airframe um, are so fo so fine, so slender that choose something else, and you end up with a with a Barracuda. Well, yeah. Yeah, 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 cue yeah, the yeah. early mus um, Mustangs, for example. Yeah, well, that was a really good example. Um, as we discovered, James, um, when we were sort of looking into Mustangs and, and Merlins and mm. Allisons, the 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 Merlin was very, very uh, fortunately a, 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 a very similar size to the Allison engine that originally powered the Mustang and fitted into yes. that engine bay uh, fortuitously comfortably. Came with that great benefits, the sort of high altitude performance of the, of sure, the Mustang. Sure. But we should talk about it. So that's the, that, that's the Mosquito. But really, the, the, the book sort of really kicks off and in, in, in gets going in 1943, doesn't it? Although, although the focus point of the book is, is the um, raid on the Gestapo headquarters at the Schellhus. Um, in in um, Copenhagen 
on 21st of March 1945. There's quite a long run into that to that big moment, and I mean we'll, we'll absolutely get onto that in a minute because it's just uh, amazing. And, and the episode in the book is just it's so brilliantly done. It really is just seat of your pants stuff. But it goes back to 1943, and and really up until that, Denmark's had quite a quiet war, hasn't it? You know, it, it's it's a bit of a backwater. Um, they're allowed to sort of govern themselves and pretty much their own way. But then there's a kind of change of personnel, change of fortunes for the Germans in the Second World War, and, and everything starts to get a bit more heavy-handed. And as it gets more heavy-handed and there's a sort of light at the end of the tunnel of the war, so the Danish resistance starts to really pick up as well. That's right. I mean, the, the critical month uh, with respect to the story I'm telling, but also uh, for Denmark and in a way the Mosquito Force as well, was January 1943. So January 1943, three, three things happened. Um, a new uh, chief organiser was parachuted into Denmark by Special Operations Executive, a remarkable man called uh, Fleming Moose. Yeah, he's amazing, isn't he? He's constantly being done for embezzling <laughs> and stealing stuff. <laughs> really funny. And being banned to Liberia. I uh, see. I sort of feel like he was probably less of a fraudster than just really enthusiastic and very careless with numbers. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, I think that's right. Because he he even after the war, he gets done after the war, doesn't he? But he, but he gets let off. He gets, gets let off. I mean, I think he was always... I mean, the, the reason he had to make his, make his way to war in a dugout canoe is he'd already been exiled to West Africa for forging company checks <laughs> at Denmark. So, so <laughs> if you were looking for a spy, he's perfect. So, but I mean, except except that he can barely see. He wears sort of Coke bottle bottom gla- uh, glasses, um, and without them, he's he's almost <laughs> blind. Uh, but they, they they parachuted him in after performing plastic surgery on him, which um, sort of transformed his appearance. Um, And the the cover story for that was that he was going to be in a movie. And they actually got Vera Lynn to go and visit him in the hospital uh, to sort of uh, (laughs) underline the the cover story. But he he was parachuted in in January 1943 and uh, lent a huge new energy to the the Danish resistance. But he is the, the SOE's man in Denmark. So, so he is, although he's Danish, he is, he, he, he's going back into Denmark, having been kind of banned to Liberia and had plastic surgery. I mean, he is much more of a, uh, despite the, the Coke bottle bottom glasses, he's much more of a James Bond figure in so much that he goes around sort of, you know, causing mayhem everywhere, but in a really positive way. Oh, no, I mean, he's, he's fantastic. He's really larger than life character. Fantastically yeah. sort of debonair as well. You know, he, he smoked very yes. expensive cigarettes. Uh, he was also always sort of uh, tweaking his uniform to, um, to, to make it look more more elegant he uh, he claimed he was a major when he was a captain um and and, and he, i mean he just sort of did whatever was required at any given moment in time uh in order to sort of achieve success um he did so with with relish um and as i say you know transformed the fortunes of soe in in um, in denmark and was there in situ um for, i mean living undercover as uh, you know he had a cover story uh, cover alias um, living in a different uh, different location every night for about uh, no, nearly two years um, before eventually uh, the Gestapo net around him closed so tight that he had to escape with his wife. And he had it's scores of cover names, didn't he? He had lots and lots of, lots of different code names as well. Tabletop um, and things like that. And I don't think he was Turnip. Uh, I think he might have been Jim. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it sort of changed every three months. I took the decision in the book to sort of stick to one just because it became so confusing. But yes, his, his code <laughs> kept on changing those those glasses aside um he was completely james bondish um and uh, yeah. and seemingly sort of fearless as well um, but he was exactly what uh, at the time the danish 
resistance needed. And he, what he did was um, harness the different elements of the resistance in Denmark. There was the the, the, the civil resistance uh, made up of kind of disparate groups, um, uh, w- one of which was the communists who were sort of better organised prior to Second World War than, than the other groups, but also the military, military intelligence, um, who sort of resented the civilian res- uh, uh, um, resistance movement. Um, but it was... Fleming Moose and SOE's job to sort of harness them all together um, to, for a common cause. And uniquely, Denmark um, was dependent on SOE for intelligence, which came from the Danish military intelligence organisation and not SIS, who operated throughout the rest of o- occupied Europe. Quirk of fate, um, it, it, Denmark belonged exclusively to SOE, um, despite SIS sort of chipping away at it throughout the Second World War. How fascinating. So the, the SOE are left to their own devices in De- Denmark, mm. And, and broadly speaking, it's pretty successful. Oh, it, it did work. I mean, they, they they sort of argued about the most extraordinary things, like who was going to get which sort of passwords, code words. You know, they decided that um, no, SOE would get vegetables while um, SIS would have um, meat and fish. Um, and I mean, it, it, you know, and, and these are the things that they would sort of lock horns over. Um, but you know, they did try. They tried to poach Fleming Moose when he he came back to London um, in the belly of mosquito, of of course, uh, which we can get onto. But he came back to London for a briefing, um, and uh, at that point, uh, SIS took him out for dinner at the Savoy and tried to get him drunk and sort of you know get him to reveal all his secrets. Uh, and, and Amazing. Roland, he get, he he hooks up with um, Inky Witchfeld, doesn't he? And 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 Inky Witchfeld's mother is this absolute heroine of the whole story. She's a she's a sort of posh aristo, isn't she? From a storytelling point of view, and and to any subject that I sort of come to, I'm I'm sort of looking for my stars and supporting actors and and, and extras, so that fashion the material to, into something that sort of feels like a, a thriller. And and in Monica Witchfeld, a daughter Inky, and Monica's best friend. And Suzanne Lassen and a, and a uh, meeting they had in summer of 1939 in Denmark. I was I was gifted this small group of people who then thread their way through the book. So, as you mentioned, Monica um, was a hero of the Danish uh, resistance. She was an Anglo-Irish aristocrat who married a, a Danish um, uh, landowner. Um, and moved to Denmark, and she had three children. Um, her daughter Inky. Um, followed her into the resistance, um, and uh, she they kept that secret from the sons and um, her, her husband, as Inky said. Um, much, no, so actually, was, yes, as Inky said much later. Oh no, we didn't tell father. You couldn't trust him with a thing, um, and so uh, they sort of operated <laughs> independently of the rest of the family. Uh, but Monica went on to become the first woman sentenced to death by the kangaroo courts the Nazis set up in in Denmark. Uh, that was later commuted and she was sent as a prisoner of war to, to Germany. Uh, her daughter, Inky, became very enamoured with, with resistance life and married Fleming Moose. And she goes back to in London, doesn't she, in training? Yeah, yeah. She, well, eventually she goes back for parachute training herself. But, but Inky and, and, uh, and, and Fleming Moose operate as a sort of Bonnie and Clyde couple. Um, in wartime Copenhagen. I mean, you know, they're having the time of their lives. And the other family, Suzanne Lassen's family, are equally remarkable. And they, they as I say, meet in summer 1939. Suzanne's um, oldest son, Anders, went on to become the only member of the wartime SAS to win the VC. And his brother, Franz, uh, followed him into the British military after escaping um, Denmark. 
Uh, first of all, joined the SOE small small scale raiding force until that was wrapped up. Then transferred to uh, become a, an agent and parachuted into to Denmark. And his arrest and torture was the sort of first card that fell uh, that leads to that raid on on the Shell House. But then there's also their cousin um, Axel. So the the Lassens were a, a Danish German family. And their cousin Axel van den Busch was uh, in a elite Prussian Guards regiment, and he was asked uh, in um, in Ukraine by the SS, or ordered by Ukraine in the SAS in, in Ukraine by the SS to establish a cordon around where the SS were um, massacring Jews and th- throwing them into a pit, and he was so disgusted by what he saw that he realised he could no longer serve the regime to which he'd previously um, been loyal through his regiment. And he, he knew he had to either die in battle, uh, desert, or actively try to bring down um, the Third Reich. And he chose the latter, made wow. his way to Klaus von Stauffenberg, who said, you're the guy we're going to use for our first attempt on Hitler's life. And the plan was that uh, von den Busch, who was very tall, blonde, and sort of uh, typically Aryan-looking, uh, was going to model these new uh, Eastern Front uniforms um, for Hitler uh, at the Wolf's Lair in East Prussia. And the plan was all in place. Von den Busch was there in, in, in East Prussia, ready to uh, model these uniforms, wearing a suicide vest, during which he was going to hug Hitler, God. set them both off and blow the, the two of them up. And uh, the, the plans that had been laid for the coup that was going to follow Hitler's death were all buried and in place, ready to go. Uh, and then two days before the operation, mosquitoes in the days just before the Battle of Berlin bombed Berlin as a sort of nuisance raid. They didn't care what they were bombing. They were just trying to uh, uh, keep Berlin um, uh, off off guard, off off balance. And uh, by chance, they struck a, a boxcar in the marshalling yard in, in Berlin, which contained all these prototype uniforms. So the uniforms that von der Bush was going to wear were destroyed by mosquitoes two days before this attempted um, assassination. So, I mean, you know, as much as the mosquito uh, helped us win the war, um, it also inadvertently may have um, delayed its end by a couple of years. Oh, God! <laughs> this is absolutely the most amazing story, isn't it? That's incredible. Yeah, it really is. I also like the story of, um, I think it was, uh, was Moose, wasn't it? He goes to Paul Borg Anderson and says, Can it? or is it Paul Borg Anderson? Who goes to, who's, who's that, when they blow up the lints and they go visit that that guy working, there's a guy working on the lints, which is a which is a, is a German ship. And he, they just say, right, um, you've got to blow it up. <laughs> Yeah, that's Paul 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 Book Anderson, who yeah, another Dane who the da- the Danish resistance was largely made up of uh, merchant seamen because when the Germans invaded uh, Denmark, right, they had no interest in Denmark. They just wanted to get to Norway, and it was a convenient stepping stone. The the uh, radio call went out to all Danish merchant seamen um, that they could come to the UK. It was going to offer them safe harbour. They didn't have to return home. And so initially, unlike uh, you know the Norwegians, the Belgians, Dutch, French, etc., etc., Czechs, Poles, there was no pool of um, men and women from which um, the Allies could draw forces. They couldn't form uh, Danish regiments or, or, or Danish fighter squadrons. And, and that was further complicated by the fact that technically, legally speaking, uh, Denmark was an Axis power. I mean, it was um, sort of under the aegis of, of German control and it still had a king and a government, democratically elected government in place. And so it was only through sort of quirk of fate, which was that um, the King, king Christian of Denmark happened to be commander-in-chief of the, the 
Buffs regiment, that they could, through that loophole, uh, employ merchant Danish merchant seamen as resistance fighters, reporting directly to their commander-in-chief, who was also the legal head of government in Denmark. And so that's why there were no Danish regiments, but somehow we found a way of getting the Danes into... Um, <laughs> Into, uh, in, into the Allied yeah. Armed Forces. Uh, but yeah, the, the, uh, Bork <laughs> Anderson was parachuted back into, um, into Denmark. He was, uh, he was a, a member of the, the, the Danish Army. He was a Danish Army officer. Um, and yeah, he uh, found electrician, a young electrician who was working on the Lintz, which was a, a ship which was being, uh, it was a sort of merchant ship being converted into a mine layer for, uh, for the Kriegsmarine. Um, and, um, named the Linz, obviously, which was, uh, the town in which Hitler grew up. So, uh, had a sort of special significance for that. Um, and laid limpet mines, which were dropped into Jutland from, uh, the, the uh, special duties RAF squadrons um, that were uh, dropping supplies into, to Denmark, um, and, uh, and, and blew it up. And that, uh, led to strikes and riots because the German clampdown led to uh, you know um, the, the oppression of the, the dockyard workers. They went on strike. De- the Danish, uh, sorry, the Germans reacted to that, uh, as you can imagine, badly. Um, led to further strikes, nationwide strikes, and all of that was was what triggered the final breakdown of the relationship, between, or the resignation of the, the the Danish government. That was really the the point at which, in August nineteen forty three. The resistance movement um, as a sort of widespread, effective um, military operation that really disrupted German plans um, accelerated to, to and ultimately secured Denmark's post-war reputation. Because the the Germans say to the democratic government, "You have to endorse these these very strict rules." that we're now imposing. And they just said no, basically, didn't they? It is striking though, isn't it, Roland, that the Germans have been, not soft on Denmark after, after this point, but essentially kind of laissez-faire with it. They've let, let the Danes get on with it. Why is that really? What, but they've sort of left Denmark in, in, intact. And it's not like what they've done in France, where they've where they've installed, a, you know, occupied half the country and installed a puppet government in the other. What, what, what's going on? Why are they? Why are they letting the Danes continue the, essentially with the status quo up to this point? Obviously. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting question, and it's one which has, um, on occasions, prompted um, strong feelings. Certain. I mean, the, there was a, a feeling yeah. certainly within um, it, within the UK that. Uh, you know, Denmark was simply not pulling its weight; that it had caved in too easily to the German. I mean, they, they, yeah. the, the the decision was taken to surrender within the hours of the Germans um, uh, rolling into Denmark. Um, yeah. But on the basis that uh, uh, any kind of resistance was simply going to lead to unnecessary slaughter, and it, yeah. in terms of protecting the Danish population, it was undoubtedly, you know, the right uh, decision. Um, but it meant that there was this sort of weird situation that, in which Denmark existed with a real minimum um, of... Um, I mean, the, the Danish are... And it have some interesting national characteristics. And I think that it's justified, fantastically sort of obstinate and stubborn, and they sort of proved this later in the war. But they're also um, very much that they uphold the rule of law. They they elect their leaders, then uh, then place their trust in them. Um, You know, it's not a country, unlike the UK, inclined to ignore stop signs uh, on level on on, um, pedestrian crossings. You know, people stop. Uh, until it turns green and then they cross because everyone yeah. sort of um, uh, adopts that sort of collective responsibility. Um, and so when the government said, this is the decision we've made 
um, and uh, you know we're your elected government. The country, by and large, went with it. Um, right. And amazingly, right. you know, the Germans let uh, the the Danish army, the Danish air force, and navy, um, you know, remain in 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 place. There were a few things which were appropriated by the Germans, but by and large. They were they uh, they remained um, at their barracks in their uniforms, you know, ready to defend Denmark ostensibly. What they yeah. the Germans the mistake the Germans made in, with respect to that was they left the military intelligence organisation uh, intact, and that was from day one uh, when British diplomats were sent out of Denmark on a sealed train. Uh, before that train left yeah. the country, Danish military intelligence threw some rolled up newspapers through a window and. In, contained within them were all the dispositions of the German military um, in, in wow. Denmark. So from day one, Danish military intelligence were um, providing SOE and SIS with, um, with, with absolutely vital um, information on, on uh, Ger- what Germans were up to. How incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it is absolutely amazing. Listen, we, ju- we, we should talk about, we, we should flip back to mosquitoes and, and Basel well, yes, Embry and well, two group. Well, let's, let's should we take, take a, a break, break and then do that? And then, we well, then we've, got to, yeah. we've got to get to the denouement, which is just amazing. Okay, well, we'll see you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, um, where we've managed to rabbit hole ourselves quite comprehensively into a full warren of Danish rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what we need to do now is drag ourselves back to the thing we're here to talk we'll about. Get, get to we, the surface of the side of the can... hill, leave the warren behind, and get to the meat of it, which is, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed <laughs> with Basil Embry. Um, for those who don't know, he's, he's an incredibly cool gung-ho RAF commander. 
um, who rises up through the ranks very, very quickly because he's just so obviously brilliant at what he does. Uh, he's he's fearless. He's leads from the front. Um, he's charismatic. He's he's clever, uh, and he has this amazing ability to kind of see things and see what the issues are and sort them out. And the first example of this is. Um, well, we go back to his his incredible escape he has in the first in in nineteen forty. But later on, he's recovered from this. Well, no, you you tell that story first, and then I'll tell you about about Malta. Yeah, I mean Baz Lembry's a I mean genuine extraordinary character, and he also has these sort of piercing blue eyes that that people always sort of reckon sort of just looked through you. And and I mean in a movie, you know, he'd be played by Colin Farrell or somewhere. You know, he just has has it all. He's sort of made of charisma. He was shot down um, early in the Battle of France and Blenheim, and then spent six weeks on the run. I was captured a couple of times on both occasions, escaped on one time, killing his German guards and hiding in a heap of manure for uh, hours and hours before eventually he. Um, I mean, it, it's a it's a story. It is genuinely a book all, all, all in its own right. And he got over the border um, uh, into Spain in the end and immediately went back to um, to rejoin his squadron in, in Suffolk. But he went on to run night fighters from Wittering and um, eventually took command of two group um, in two two TAF, two, Second Tactical Air Force. Um, and he, so he was responsible for all of the uh, medium bomber forces uh, within Second Tactical Air Force. And uh, he sort of attracted quality personnel towards him. He wanted people uh, who, who saw the war in the same way as he, he, he did, who, who would relentlessly attack the enemy, uh, who were driven and uh, who would always put themselves in harm's way. And uh, so you know, he attracted people like Bob Braham, who was competing with Johnny Johnson to be the UK or Britain's leading ace. Um, uh, Laddie Lucas made his, forced his way, uh, took a demotion to force his way into two group. And uh, so he built this organisation, which was very much in his own image. Um, and he left, in terms of preparation, he left no stone unturned. He was remarkable. Well, I, ca- I came across him first when I was doing my Malta book all those years ago, because as I may have mentioned a few times on this podcast, I- I'm not a huge fan of Hugh P. Lloyd, who was the air officer commanding of Malta for that crucial middle period. And Tedder, who was the um, air officer commanding in the Middle East, of the RF in the Middle East, got Embry to come out on a mission, a sort of fact-finding mission to, to the Middle East and, and just sort of, you know, you're, you're a fighter leader, you're, you're a gung-ho guy, you know, what, what's your take on this, a fresh set of eyes? Uh, and he got over to the Middle East and, and was doing, you know, great works in, in, in Egypt. And then Tedder said to him, look, there's obviously trouble at the camp at um, Malta. Can you go over to Malta and just sort of say what you think? And so he went over there and he was over there literally for three days or a week or something. And he said, right, what you need is lots of Spitfires and you need a ground controller and you need this and you need that and, and then it all will be fine. And basically it all came to pass. And and the amazing thing is that he could see that in literally 24 hours of being there in a way that all the other people that are commanders that have been, including Hugh Lloyd, who'd been on Malta, couldn't. And then he comes back, and, and and as you say, you know, when he takes over two group, two group is the kind of forgotten group. It's the kind of, it's the kind of the dis, the dud of the of, of bomber command, isn't it? It's not really sort of going anywhere, and 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 it's kind of sort of got morale issues and and all the rest of it. And he takes over, he just totally grips it, and it's one of those things. He's a bit like kind of Mary Cunningham, where where his sheer kind of charisma and personality absolutely just sort of sprinkled down from the top and sort of cast this incredible kind of sort of fairy dust over everyone below and just sort of transform it. And he turns around second group. And the great thing about second group is the second group gets gets moved from Bomber Command into the second tactical air force, which is an absolute result for it because Embry can't do what he wants to do under Harris. 
but he can in second half, which is obviously commanded by Mary Cunningham. Embry uh, actually served under Bomber Harris in Iraq. Uh, so Harris was uh, Embry's squadron commander when they were kind of yeah. on, on policing duties there. But but no, you're absolutely right. And and, and there was Harris had to decide whether or not he wanted uh, Don Bennett or Embry to run the Pathfinders. And Embry was certainly in contention for that. But in the end, and I, I think the way I put it in the book was that. With two group, he got a role that was much better suited to uh, his particular talents in that it was a job which meant he could really see the whites of the eyes of the enemy. And, uh, you know, that's what he wanted. And yeah, two group, it, it was a sort of, it was like a sort of Cinderella. You know, nobody really wanted it. Paris certainly didn't want it. Although when he handed it over, and this is a sort of interesting point about the way Embry sort of grappled with the, with his new command. When Harris gave two group uh, to Second Tactical Air Force, he kept the two Mosquito squadrons around which he built the Pathfinder units. Um, and so when Embry was given two group, he had this kind of motley collection of, uh, of medium bombers, you know, Bostons and Mitchells, and was threatened with a load of uh, Valti Vengeance dive bombers from the States, which he went and tested at Boscombe Down, just said, you know, this is going to kill more people than the fairy battles did. There's absolutely no way I'm having these. And Lee Mallory allowed him to uh, make his case personally to the air ministry, he said, what I need are Mosquitoes. And while he, he kept the Bostons and Mitchells, um, he was allowed to build uh, two wings of uh, mosquitoes, uh, 138, 140. And the, he was first exposed to the mosquito and loved it when he was running the night fighter squadrons. But um, so the, the book is sort of built around the exploits of 140 wing, which was made yeah. up of 464 uh, Royal Australian Air Force, 21 Squadron RAF and 487 Royal New Zealand Air Force. But, you know, it was transformative. And in working out how best to use those mosquitoes, he, he left no stuff unturned and he he was far too senior at this point he was now vice marshal to be flying on operations but you know he took all the name tags out of his uniforms uh took all the unnecessary uh, rings off the sleeves and had a pair of dog tags in the name of wing commander smith and flew on mission after mission after mission and expected all his senior um uh, officers to do the same but on the very first low-level mission uh, he joined to France. On the way home, he hit a, a migrating duck and it really badly smashed up the, the mosquito. And so his reaction to that was, OK, um, this is clearly uh, something that could jeopardise the success of our operations. What do we do? So he got in touch with... Um, what, ducks? <laughs> yeah. Ducks, yeah, yeah, exactly. Low-flying birds. So he thought, right, what we need to know about is just the migrating patterns of, uh, of ducks uh, around the Frisian Islands. And so he got in touch with Peter Scott, the son of polar explorer yeah. Robert Falcon Scott, um, to study the uh, migration patterns of, uh, of ducks uh, around the Frisian Islands so that he could make sure that, that they, were as, uh, they, they gave themselves the very best chance of, uh, of avoiding them. When he wanted Amazing. models of targets um, and the air ministry said, oh, yeah, we'll get that to you in six weeks. And I don't want it six weeks. You know, I want it next week. Um, and so he put together Mungwell Park, uh, two groups uh, headquarters, his own model making uh, unit made up of um, you know, he had cake decorators on that um, particular. You know, they worked in the attic <laughs> as cake decorators, making models of, of targets, including Copenhagen um, as well. I mean, he would always simply sidestep the air ministry or senior command 
whenever he's given the opportunity. And the, the, the only one occasion when he couldn't was um, the uh, the attack on Amiens prison um, to free the French resistance, where he was specifically ordered by Lee Mallory not to join that mission. Speculation being that he simply knew too much about D-Day plans. And he said to his remarkable 21-year-old navigator, Ted Sismore, who still wanted to go, well, if I can't go, you can't go. And, and Lee Mallory uh, organised a, a special meeting at um, Tutaf headquarters uh, to make sure that, that Embry couldn't tell him he hadn't gone, but go anyway. Absolutely. Honestly, Embry is, is literally one of the... He's one of, he's one of the great, great characters. He's, he's such a lad. So many of these people you've been talking about so far, uh, Ronan, do you think, what on earth would they have all done without a war? Because, <laughs> because they're so suited, they're so suited to this set of circumstances. Fleming Moose. You know, all of them. They're people who need a life of adventure and the war sort of plops it in their lap. And I mean, obviously, obviously it's fantastic there are people who are good at this sort of thing. But you do wonder, you know, they'd have had to be climbing Everest or something, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so jumping off the side of Mont Blanc with a parachute on the back. Yeah, many many of them sort of subsequently did. I mean, one of the, I mean, he's a sort of peripheral character in the book, but I just think he's absolutely fantastic guy, a fighter pilot called Jazz Storer, who was an ace by 19 during the Battle of Britain. He was a sort of big lad and... um, he, he had all of the sort of um, um, linings of his RF uniforms sort of um, specially tailored in red silk. Mm. And he went to North Africa where he and his, his great mate sort of liberated an Italian uh, village because it just looked pretty from the air. Um, then they realised that this village was being attacked by bandits every night. So they, they sort of jacked up their, uh, their hurricanes on the main street and just sort of waited in the cockpits with um, all, all the, the electrics turned on for the um for the bandits to arrive and then they just fired at them and so they protected the these italians who were um, living in fear of their lives from these bandit raids with a little sort of improvisation entirely kind of you know unauthorized Uh, he was also jazz the first uh, allied pilot to fly into occupied france after d-day he flew into paris as part of the air delivery letter service um, in before the liberation, only discovered that he'd landed quite near a, a Gestapo headquarters and somehow sort of spirited away by the French resistance and stayed in Paris until the liberation of Paris. But he got bored of being in the air delivery service and wanted to return to the front line. So um, ends up flying Mustangs. And uh, he commanded 64... Uh, 126 and there was, I think there was 264s. He moved around the Mustang squadrons. They, they were a handful of, of bosses as Michel Donnet, uh, Arna Austin, yes, the, yes, the, yes. the Norwegian, and they sort of seemed to uh, share them all. But, but after the war, just to speak to your point about them uh, needing a war to sort of keep them entertained, uh, <laughs> he, he became a vet in Cheshire, but realised he ne- needed to keep flying. So he joined the RAF Volunteer Revo- Reserve. He he flew his um, meteor underneath the um, Menai Straits Bridge. Uh, and oh, he hell. also went powerboating uh, in the British Offshore Championships. And uh, oh, he, he, drove, <laughs> he drove a V12 at Jaguar XJS with personalised jazz store plates. Uh, oh, and, and also managed to commandeer his own <laughs> Yak-9 in, in Italy at the end of the war, which, of course, he sort of scribbled jazz on the side of. I mean, these are they're people whose stories you just can't make up. Um, and he's just a sort of bit part player in the Mosquito uh, book. I mean, there's a... There's a list of 20 and as i say it becomes difficult to to decide on your stars your, your 
extra as your supporting characters, but I mean, Embry certainly is a star. Ted Sizemore, the navigator I mentioned, is yeah, yeah, just a remarkable cool. character because it, it's a sort of circling back a bit to January 1943, which was what got us off down into Denmark. But in yeah. the Mosquito story, January, January 1943, was critical uh, in that it was the month in which Ted Sismore led a raid to Berlin specifically to disrupt the 10th anniversary Nazi's accession to power, their celebrations in Berlin. And he dropped bombs on Berlin on the dot of 11 o'clock, just as Hermann Goering got up to speak. And Goering had to be sort of whipped off stage, bundled into um, a bomb shelter while they sort of played martial music, which which they were listening to in the sort of cellars of Stalingrad, which was just about to be overrun. They're supposed to be listening to this speech, which was going to do wonders for their, uh, as you can imagine, pretty fragile morale. And suddenly all they could hear was the sound of British bombs and um, classical music. As you can imagine, didn't do much for the fact that they were about to be overrun by the by the Russians, and um, you know that was when uh, Ted Sismore sort of first made an impression on senior command. It was also when, just like Embry, uh, he earned a price on his head from the Nazis. His name was well known to uh, to the Third Reich, as was Embry's, because he killed his guards escaping from from Germany. So they shared that in common. They literally had a both of them a price on their heads. And that raid's the one that leads to Goering saying, you know, we they have the geniuses, we have the nincompoops. Yes, exactly. Get me those mosquitoes. Yeah, he says, uh, you know, why do we even bother making our new designs? It would be much easier if we, we just built uh, mosquitoes. And it, it drove him mad that they were made out of wood. Um, rather than metal, because we we had access to more aluminium than uh, than the, the Germans, as far as Ger- as Goering was uh, was aware, and yet we didn't bother. We made them in piano factories and furniture factories, sort of all around the the country. And it, I mean, I, the, the end of that line was Goering saying, "Well, you know, when this war's over, I'm going to buy myself a British radio because at least I'll have something that works." Yeah, it's absolutely amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's so the flip side of, of what everyone thinks of, of sort of Vorsprung Dutch technique, I think. But listen, Rona, we we got to get on to Operation Carthage. 21st of March, 1945. Since August 1943, the Gestapo has been sort of, you know, this is a, a, a real romp through. But I mean, it's basically been sort of closing in on the Danish resistance. Lots of the key people are now in the Shellhus, which is the Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen, in, in cells there, and being tortured absolutely horrifically. Monica Witchfeld has been, has been captured and sentenced to death, commuted, but she dies in prison. Age only 50. I mean, you know, just by sort of maltreatment. Um, it's, it's all going pear shape, And it is the Danish resistance. It's the, it's the new guy who's taken over from Fleming Moose, Olli Lippmann, who is saying, we need this operation. We need you to come and destroy the, the shell hose. And, and there's massive reluctance, isn't there? Because, you know, it's right in the middle of a city. I've just read a really interesting review by a, a kind of former, very senior RAF uh, Jaguar pilot who talks about that Operation Carthage um, raid in terms of moral courage. Um, and, and that's the thing uh, on both sides of the decision that really struck yeah. him. There's Olly Lippmann um, having to wrestle with this idea that 26 members of, of the Danish senior Danish resistance have been put in the attic of the Shell House by uh, the Gestapo as uh, as a human shield so that, that very successfully uh, 140 wing mosquitoes bombed the gestapo headquarters in Aarhus in in jutland it was a complete success and they absolutely leveled it 
and uh, they didn't lose a single aeroplane, uh, and it was great success. Aarhus being another town in Denmark. Uh, that's right. That's uh, a big town in Jutland, which is sort of main Danish peninsula. And, and immediately, those uh, leading the Gestapo in, in, in Copenhagen realised that potentially Shellhouse is in the crosshairs as well. And so they, cam- they camouflage the building. I mean, it looks like a sort of dazzle-painted World War One ship. And uh, they build cells in the attic um, and they load those cells from the end of the year onwards with um, senior members of Danish resistance, um, including a neurosurgeon called uh, Mogens Fogg, who had been um, a great partner of uh, Fleming Moose prior to, to his arrest. And Bork Anderson, he's there as well. And Bork Anderson, he's, he's in there. Bork, I mean, Bork Anderson's story as part of this is, is really interesting. But um, so they're, they're in there and Ollie Lippmann has to decide on two things, whether or not he is prepared to sacrifice the lives of his senior colleagues um, in order to protect the Danish resistance and whether or not the threat to the Danish resistance from the Gestapo is now so critical that this raid has to happen. All of the, the name, you know, the Gestapo were pretty methodical. They had these, this incredible sort of almost sort of Rolodex system where they could cross-reference different members of the resistance, and their, their addresses and target them so that they could mount sort of mass raids. Uh, but but also Denmark is absolutely swarming with Germans by this point because obviously because of the losses in in Northwest Europe, there's more Germans are sort of pushing up up into the Jutland Peninsula, isn't it? I mean De- Denmark's like a kind of um, rest and recuperation, a huge rest and recru- recuperation farm for uh, yes. Germans. It's about three hundred thousand uh, German soldiers in in Denmark, and as we sort of touched on earlier, you know Denmark had escaped all of the sort of damage and destruction that had afflicted the rest of, of, of occupied Europe. Um, and it was up to the resistance to disrupt and degrade the German presence in, in Denmark. And and where Danish tr- or troops, German troops from Denmark were going to be sent to reinforce um, the battle in Normandy, for instance, to, yeah. to delay their arrival. And it was, it was because the Danish resistance delayed the arrival of uh, reinforcements from Denmark that actually there was time for Eisenhower's forces to get to Paris in time to liberate it before reinforcements arrived. He was given a very brief uh, window of opportunity by um, the senior German officer in in Paris. I'm, I'm sort of getting distracted again. <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, yes, Schellhus, Schellhus. Uh, so Ola Lippmann had to make this decision. And it had been delegated to him um, at the time that he parachuted into to Denmark, by Baz, specifically by Basil Embry, who, who believed that trying to hit a single building in such a densely populated city as Copenhagen put at risk as many as 300 uh, innocent civilians. Um, the, they were literally aiming their bombs using hand-eye coordination. The bomb sites were used to say it was looking at the picture through the cockpit window and coming yeah. in low to ensure uh, accuracy. And, and as, you, as you fly in, you drop the bombs and the bombs come in at an angle, don't they? Is that right? If you fly 10 feet over the top of a building... Um, you know that if you dropped your bombs at the right point, they're going to hit um, the, yeah. the wall that essentially you've just flown yeah. over the top of. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. exactly yeah. the technique they used in Amiens, same technique that they mm. used in uh, Aarhus as well. And also yeah. um, and at the Hague um, as well, where they, yeah. uh, they, they bombed the Gestapo records there. So the decision was made that such was the threat to the Danish resistance and s- such was the threat as a result to the stability in Denmark, which... Had it kicked off in Denmark in the way that it had in Warsaw 
for instance, um, or threatened to in Paris when the communists rose up against the, the Germans at a point when Eisenhower had been hoping he was going to be able to bypass Paris completely. Yeah. Had that happened and you suddenly create uh, an unpredictable situation in New Northern Europe uh, populated by 300,000 German troops, it had the potential to sort of derail the, the planned liberation of of, of Europe in a way that, as I say, was unpredictable and, and dangerous. So the continued presence of the resistance in Denmark was really critical to maintaining a sort of um, keeping the plan for the liberation of, uh, of Europe on track. And so decision was taken to send in the mosquitoes and it was delayed for, for, for days because of bad weather. I mean, this was the sort of North European winter. The weather was absolutely foul. And actually, Ollie Lippmann had given up uh, any hope of the mosquitoes arriving had, and had sort of said as much. He'd signalled London saying, you know, look, we appreciate there must be reasons you can't come. It's sad. I mean, he'd sent a number of increasingly desperate signals wondering where the RAF were. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they couldn't tell him when they were going to come um, because that would jeopardise the operational security of the mission itself. But on 21st March 1945, a force of 20 mosquitoes armed each with 2,000 pounds of bombs and 30 escorting Mustangs from Michel Donnet's wing at um, Watership. Including Jazz. Uh, including, yeah, including Jazz Stora. They crossed the North Sea um, guided by Ted Sismore. It was a remarkable piece of navigation. He's flying at sort of 40 feet over the... Um, over the sea and uh, he all he has is a compass wind speed maps and charts but but you know this is featureless ocean for uh, an hour and a half um, yeah. and he's got to try and make landfall in denmark and the only way he has a, he says he always maintained that flying a mosquito navigation of a low-level mosquito is more like driving than flying because you're looking ahead of you um rather than down on the landscape so it's quite hard to get your your bearings and the only way he had of making sure that he was in the right place uh, when they made landfall in Denmark was using Admiralty North Sea pilot charts. So these were used by trawlers uh, to make sure that they were kind of finding the right harbour. So the things marked on there were things like church steeples, buoys, or even tall sand dunes. So he was having to make sure that he was getting the right sand dune uh, as he came into uh, into Denmark. But amazingly, he managed to bring that first wave of mosquitoes to Carthage. With Wing Commander Smith. With Wing Commander Smith in that first wave, on time, on target with his pilot, Bob, pinpoint Bateson. He'd earned that reputation after. And also, Roland, the conditions are really, really... Conditions are horrible. Uh, was, they had a fierce headwind um, the whole way. Um, I love the fact that Embry called it boisterous. Boisterous, yeah. And Embry was really enjoying himself, clearly, um, when you read his memoirs um, and or, or read interviews with him. Or, or, sorry, watch interviews with him. And while a, a number of the others in the formation were worried about him, I mean, he was 20 years younger than the rest of them, 20 years older than the rest of them. Um, and they reckoned that his navigator, who'd been a, been a student, that he'd <laughs> he sort of hijacked from Cambridge University because he thought he might know how to use a radar and hadn't actually passed a um, flight medical, but he was, he was Embry's man. Um, perhaps didn't have the eyesight that was required for a mission of this sort of precision. So the rest of the team were a bit worried about Embry, but they needn't have worried about him. He was, he was fine. But the new commanding officer of 21 Squadron, Peter Klebo, was not as experienced at flying low level. He was an extremely brave pilot and had won the DFC. Uh, he'd fought as part of the rear guard in Burma in a Blenheim Squadron. And um, he uh, was relatively new to 21 Squadron, who'd lost a couple of commanding officers in quick succession. 
And on the final approach to the target, he clipped a lighting stand in a marshalling yard, um, I mean, yeah. about a mile away from the show, Shell House. His plane was um, fatally damaged and he managed to keep it in the air um, for about another mile, but drifted yeah. off course. There's this amazing bit where he goes through, he goes between two buildings because he's so low. And the the wingspan of a of a mosquito is something like 52 feet. And there's there's three feet either side of him. I mean, going through it kind of over 300 miles an hour. I mean, can you imagine it? I mean, it's just absolutely astonishing. If you go to that street now, you can see the, the new brickwork up at the top of that uh, building on the left uh, where... Yeah. Uh, Klebo's wing, Reg Hall, his navigator, clipped it. Speculation is, and it, it feels likely, is that they were trying to make their way to uh, a park, which was um, in a um, an area called Fredericksburg, which was sort of rich, um, diplomatic kind of area, a suburb of, of, of Copenhagen. And uh, they weren't going to make it. They clipped another building. I think he tried to line up on a, a wide avenue but he couldn't keep it in the air and they crashed on some garages there. And because it was garages and there was tyres, there was fuel, and there were sort of cars parked there, it sent up a massive plume of, of horrible black smoke. Yeah. So the first wave of mosquitoes, of six mosquitoes, hit the shell house perfectly. But the subsequent waves, and they'd made sure that there was a minute separation between them so that the second and the third wave wouldn't get hit by the explosions from the time-delayed bombs of the waves ahead of them, were distracted by that plume of smoke. And it's Thompson and Carver, isn't it, who, who, who get the wrong target? That's right. Um, one one aeroplane from the second second wave, the New Zealand wave, sorry, the Australian wave, gets the target wrong and their bombs hit a school. I mean, the kids, because this, the air raid sirens have gone off, are already on their ways way into the bomb shelter at, at the bottom. Um, but when the, the, those bombs hit, um, walls start to collapse. And I had this, this sort of remarkable uh, opportunity to meet a man called John Holstein, um, who had been a pupil at school uh, on the day and shared his sort of first-hand experiences of that. And he was waiting to make his way to the, to the bomb shelter. And when the third wave came in and further bombs um, hit nearby the school, walls started to collapse. And he was saved by... It was the loo door. Um, he was standing outside the primary pupil's loo door and that sort of fell on top of him and then protected him from the rubble that, that fell. And Klebo was lost. And a couple of the other mosquitoes were also lost. A lot of flak coming up by this point. And the Nuremberg, a German Navy cruiser, was in the harbour. And, and, and they, uh, unlike a lot of the, the um, flak posts which were set up on the rooftops in Denmark, were absolutely on the ball when that raid struck. The mosquitoes left with the Mustangs and then there was a desperate race to try and save as many of the um, the children uh, and teachers, nuns from that um, convent school as possible. And John Holstein was one of those who survived. 87 children were killed, which is absolutely tragic. And very much as, you know, Embry had predicted was at risk of happening. I mean, you know, there were too many variables in an operation like this. Yeah, yeah. But most of the resistance guys get out, don't they? So this is the remarkable flip side of the story, is that not only was the, from, from a military point of view, the objective 100% met, they destroyed the Gestapo headquarters, uh, they destroyed all of those um, Gestapo records. But remarkably, because that first wave bombs went in so low and on the southwest corner of the shell house, 
without damaging a staircase at the on the uh, northeast corner 21 of the prisoners who were being kept in the, the shell house attic managed to escape and we talked about bork anderson bork anderson was being interrogated at the time that the mosquito oh this is amazing this bit. he's sitting um in front of the desk with his interrogator uh, sitting in front of him with a window behind his interrogator. So, so Bork Anderson's looking out across po- uh, Copenhagen and he sees these mosquitoes um, coming in. He thinks, and he, th- he wonders whether to shout a warning. And, and in the end, he doesn't. He just stands up, throws the table in the face of, um, of, of his interrogator. And everyone's so surprised, including the guards on the, on the door. They don't know what's going on. And he charges out of the room and charges down the stairs as the bombs are coming into the building. And he Absolutely. manages his, to escape. And the same is happening on the, on the top floor. Um, they're hearing the bombs hit and they're kicking down the, the, the doors and uh, grabbing the keys off the German guards and letting everybody out. And they're, they're I mean, it's like a sort of scene out of a, a, a movie, you know, escaping this collapsing, burning building um, with sort of explosions in their wakes. They come to the, the main foyer and uh, by this time, the later, this came from one of the, the um, Australian um, mosquitoes, lost his bearings and came in from a different angle on the shell house and took out the main foyer. And so when um, Morgan's Fog um, and others make their way to that foyer, they're stepping over horribly badly um, injured Germans who have been sort of lacerated by the glass from the building as some have lost legs and limbs and they're sort of jumping over them um, to try and escape from the building and they do I mean they they look like the people who emerged from uh, from 9-11 I mean they're white with yeah. dust uh, when they emerge from the building sort of running like ghosts through the street to find a safe house I've got to say, Ronan, this the, the whole sequence, the, the, the raid and how it happens and how it plays out. Because what you, what you brilliantly do is you you constantly flip from from points of view. So one minute you're with, you know, Klebo, the next minute you're with, you know, other pilots. Then you're back with the resistance guys. Then you're with John in the school. It's absolutely pulsating. I mean, it, it is it is absolutely brilliantly conveyed, and it's in, incredibly exciting. One of the things that kind of um, I just thought about when I when I was reading it was, man, what a long way the British had come since 1940. You know, you think about kind of Dunkirk, and then you think just 1945, you've got these just phenomenal aircraft coming in and delivering a... Pres- I mean, I mean, that just smacks of just total dominance, that, you know, you have these superior machines and these superior pilots and these superior weapons and superior intelligence. And you're picking and, these raids to do, you know. The, these raids and you're, and you're hitting the target, you know, which, which had it not been for Klebo, would have been 100% successful in every single way. And, and you know, there wouldn't have been um, um, any, almost certainly no stray bombs on, on the school or anything. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal action. I, I mean, it, it, it really, really is. The audacity and the confidence uh, of that is remarkable. But I think, I mean, just to kind of bring this back to the mosquito, what is really extraordinary, I suppose, is that here we are in March 1945, and we've seen from 1940 the march of technology, the kind of the speed with which um, new designs and uh, more capable airframes have been sort of joining the air forces of both the Allies and um, the Axis um, air forces. And yet it isn't until the arrival of the uh, Messerschmitt 262 that the Mosquito is genuinely and comprehensively outclassed as a flying machine. 
Um, and even then, it was not, a, no, not guaranteed that, as we know from Colin Bell's experience, that um, um, a 262 was absolutely going to uh, be able to bring down a, a mosquito. And at night, yeah. you know, the mosquitoes were, if not invulnerable, very, very hard to catch. Um, you yeah. know, it's... It speaks volumes of the rightness, the correctness um, of that initial... I mean, the mould line of the mosquito, unlike the Spitfire, for instance, didn't change from the moment no. it uh, entered squadron service until uh, the time it left. I mean, except for sort of different putting a radar on the front or whatever. In terms of um, its aerodynamics and its engines, it simply remained um, the same machine it was in 1941. Um, and, uh, and to have survived uh, at the top of the tree I'm almost unchallenged as a flying machine for so long at a time of such swift technological development is really extraordinary. Yeah. Well, we're massive fans of the mosquito on this chat, has to be said. Um, uh, Ronan, that's, uh, I mean, I'm conscious we've sort of barely, barely sort of scraped the surface of that. It, it, it's a fantastic book. It's so entertaining. And I just love, you know, I'm a big fan of how you write your stuff and I can't recommend it more highly. So if anyone's in need of a Christmas book, this is one to go and get. Absolutely. It's a tremendous book, and I, I think one of the one of the things that um, needs to be seen to be believed is the, is the photographs of the mosquitoes coming in over Copenhagen. How low they are! You can see how you how you might clip a lamppost or 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 scrape a wall. You can completely see it. It's absolute guts of the men doing it. I just love that. There's that one just to finish on Emery. That lovely scene where he's dropped his bombs, and suddenly there's a sort of shadow overhead him, uh, overhead his aeroplane, like yes. a sort of bird of prey. And he's already at rooftop level, and he's he flies that he's flying down the middle of a street, and he can see people scattering into doorways to try and avoid his mosquito. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, as you say, Al, that, it's it's hard to get that picture out of your head for sure. Well, thanks very much, Roland. Mosquitoes in all good bookshops. Uh, there we go. Well, no one's watching this, are there? There's no yeah. point in me holding it up to the camera. <laughs> they might be. <laughs> Force of habit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.